Welcome to Cases and Controversies, the legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. And this is our deep dive recap of the October sitting, and we're going to go over the big cases on sex discrimination, talk about a little bit about some of the other cases, the new controversial two-minute rule, and we're going to have a guest calling in from Puerto Rico who argued one of the cases this term, and so that maybe gives a hint as to what the case was, but you'll just have to keep listening to see. Right. So um, we should start with the most important news at the top. The Supreme Court's new two-minute quiet time rule already already busted. Who could it have been? I don't that know. I mean, such a lofty rule. You know, I, I was thinking about it. I thought it might be Justice Thomas um, who broke the rule. But okay, okay. But before we joke, we should back up and just say what this quote-unquote rule yes, is. For those of you who've been living under a rock. <laughs> So this is really not a rule. It's actually just guidance that the court issued um, right before the start of this term, which says that generally the justices will allow an advocate to speak for um, two minutes or one minute in the case of um, certain parties uninterrupted uh, without getting peppered by the extremely hot bench that our current court is. Of course, the important word there was Generally. Generally. <laughs> and so we saw the court made it through six arguments for that was busted by Justice Sotomayor. She was quickly, though, kind of sort of chided by the chief justice who, who told the advocate he could answer that question once uh, once he was done with his two minutes. Interestingly, in the very next argument, uh, Sotomayor again interrupted before the two minutes. This time, though, she caught herself, so the chief didn't have to jump in. But see how far this generally will take yeah. the advocate or the justices now Now that we've already busted it. R.I.P. the two-minute rule. It's good to know you. <laughs> it was good. It was short, but it was good. Well, it can help us a little bit, you know, in terms of uh, if we're doing an argument story, we can at least know when we'll, there's just going to be one person speaking to get one of the attorney's quotes. So maybe it was a rule to, to help uh, Supreme Court reporters. Yeah, except that I've been noticing that I've been very distracted by the light. So there's going to be a little light yeah. that goes off, but it's just very brief little light that like beep, you know. And so if you miss it, you don't know if the two minutes has gone by or not. So I found myself really distracted. I haven't heard the first two minutes of anybody's arguments because I've been looking at this little light. I'll have to get over that. But. Yeah, no, I had the same thing too. I'm trying to get in like a line <laughs> of vision where you can sort of see them, but you have a little like window for the light and then yeah you're like okay good i can see this but leaning over your neighbor getting yeah. close okay well now that we've covered the most important stuff yeah. i don't know should we wrap up and yeah either that or we could talk about you know what could be one of the biggest you know civil rights cases in recent years either one okay all right let's do that all right so on october 8th we had consolidated arguments about Title VII, that's the federal law that protects against employment discrimination. And the question is whether that Title VII protection gives employees protections for people who are uh, LGBT. And so heading into the argument, it seemed like this sets up for another sort of classic 5-4 showdown where the employees would lose the case at the hands of the Republican appointees. But after the argument, what do we think, Kimberly? You were there. In the words of one of the justices, 
it's really close. Um, so actually, before going into the argument, um, it wasn't, at least to me, it wasn't a clear-cut case that it, this was going to be a 5-4 decision. And that's because the way that the employees had framed the arguments were really targeted toward textualists like Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh. When we got on the arguments, we did see some justices falling along, you know, pretty expected lines. Mm-hmm. Of course, early on in the argument, the very first question out of the gate was from Justice Ginsburg, who wondered, you know, what the response of the employees is um, to the argument that, of course, LGBT workers were not in the minds of Congress when they passed this law in 1964. But then there was some recognition that the law since then has been interpreted to include a lot Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, Congress wouldn't have thought of in 1964. Um, So here's actually one of those exchanges between Justice Ginsburg and the attorney for the employees uh, in the first case and arguing that the gay and lesbian workers should be covered, Pam Carlin of the Stanford Clinic. Ms. Collin, how do you answer the argument that back in 1964 this could not have been in Congress's mind because in many states male same-sex relations was a criminal offense? The American Psychiatric Association labeled homosexuality a, a mental illness? Well, I think you read the words of the statute, and this Court has recognized again and again forms of sex discrimination that were not in Congress's contemplation in 1964. In 1964, those were the days of madmen. So the idea that sexual harassment would have been reached, most courts didn't find sexual harassment to be actionable until this Court did. In Price Waterhouse, this Court recognized that discrimination against a woman who cursed like a sailor, walked like a man, and didn't wear makeup was was reachable under Title VII. If you had asked members of Congress then what they had thought, they would not have been thinking about women like Ann Hopkins. And actually, it was shortly after this that Pam Carlin did one, a really a pretty baller move. Yeah, not uh, her first argument. Uh, no, it's not her first argument. But just a couple of minutes into uh, the argument, she had some, some dead time, which seems like forever in a Supreme Court argument when you just have one or two seconds. So she decided to uh, make a little light of the situation. Here she is. Men and women. Title VII was intended to make sure that men were not disadvantaged relative to women and women were not disadvantaged relative to men. And when you tell two employees who come in, both of whom tell you they married their partner Bill last weekend, when you fire the male employee who married Bill and you give the female employee who married Bill a couple of days off so she she can celebrate the joyous event, that's discrimination because of sex. Well, if no one has any further questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Well, I think we'll have further questions. From the standpoint of the Republican-appointed justices, we saw a lot of concern for if the Supreme Court does say that LGBT workers are covered, what issues are going to be coming next. So there was a lot of discussion about transgender bathrooms and schools and workplaces, an issue that's actually already been up to the Supreme Court, although not decided. And then some other issues. Here's Justice Alito talking about, you know, one particular issue that seems pretty challenging that could be coming or that he says is coming soon. Here's Justice Alito. Let me move beyond the bathroom to uh, another example, and it's not before us, but it will be coming. So a transgender woman is not permitted to compete on a woman's college sports team. Is that discrimination on the basis of sex in violation of Title IX? 
So, but what the case does come down to, I think, at the end of the day, will be um, the two textualist judges, uh, justices. Justice. I thought they're all textualists now, right? According to right. Justice Kagan. According to Justice Kagan. I do think it will come down to the two Trump appointees, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh. As far as Justice Gorsuch, in the first arguments um, regarding gay and lesbian uh, workers, when he was chatting with the employer's attorney, Jeffrey Harris, he really pushed on this idea that Harris had, had said that these people weren't fired because of their sex, which is the language in Title VII, mm-hmm. but because of their sexual orientation. And Justice Gorsuch thought, well, isn't sex part of sexual orientation? Even if there are two different things, isn't one kind of a subset of the other? So here's Justice Gorsuch um, with attorney Jeffrey Harris. So the, um, uh, your, your response to Justice Kagan was, I need to focus on sexual orientation because that's the sole or primary causal factor here for the firing. And I think the response from the other side is, but the statute has a more generous causal formulation, a but-for causal formulation. So perhaps you're right that at some level sexual orientation is surely in in play here. But isn't sex also in play here um, because of the change of the first variable? Right. So I think — And isn't that enough it, it, you know, the statute talks about a, a material causal factor or some formulation like that, not the sole cause, not the proximate cause, but a cause. And one, one would, in, what, in what linguistic formulation would, wouldn't, would one say that sex, biological gender, has nothing to do with what happened in this case. But then we saw in the second argument about transgender workers, Gorsuch kind of pull back a little bit on that and say, you know, this is something that's a really close call. Isn't this something we should leave to Congress? Here he is kind of in a back and forth with ACLU attorney David Cole. Hey, so, Mr. Cole, though, you, your argument, though, doesn't turn on that. I mean, it, as I understand it, again, that um, if, if the firing had been solely what the employer claims, the basis of um, the dress code only, the result would be the same. And I, I guess I, I'd just like you to have a chance to respond to Judge Lynch and his thoughtful dissent in which he um, lamented everything you have for us, but suggested that something uh, as drastic a change in this country as uh, bathrooms in every place of employment and dress codes in every place of employment that are otherwise gender neutral uh, would be changed, that, that, that that's an essentially legislative decision. Your Honor, judge Lynch is a very thoughtful judge and, and, and wrote a very thoughtful opinion that I, I think he probably regretted having to write. What do you say to, to him? I, I say um, that recognizing that transgender people have a right to exist in the workplace and not be turned away because of who they are does not end dress codes or restrooms. There are transgender lawyers in this courtroom of, today. Of course there and are. The tra- That's and, not the question, and, Mr. No, Cole. Mr. This, Cole, the question is a matter of the judicial role and modesty in interpreting statutes that are old. And that's the question he posed. Right. Nobody is questioning, and he certainly did not, the legitimacy of the claims and the importance of them. So, so I think the question two, is a matter of judicial interpretation. Yeah, there's two. If you two, wish to address it. Two, two, two answers to that, Your Honor. First, on the question of judicial interpretation, we are not asking you to apply any meaning of sex other than the one that everybody agrees 
uh, on uh, as of 1964, which is sex assigned at birth or, as they, as they put it, biological sex. We're not asking you to re- rewrite it. Second. I agree with that. Second. The question, though, again, I'm sorry to pose it, yeah. but I'm going to give you one more shot. Yeah. Right? When a case is really close, really close on the textual evidence, and I assume for the moment I'm, yeah. I'm with you on the textual evidence, is close, okay? We're, we're not talking about extra textual stuff. We're talking about the text. It's close. A judge finds it very close. At the end of the day, should he or she take into consideration the massive social upheaval that would be entailed in such a decision and the possibility that, that Congress didn't think about it so, and that, um, that that is a more, effect, more appropriate legislative rather than a judicial function? That, that's it. It's a question of judicial modesty. Concern about massive upheaval, that's not necessarily a textualist concern, right? That seems like more of a practical concern, doesn't it? It's about judicial interpretation, Jordan. Didn't you hear Justice Gorsuch? Modesty. I mean, look, they're, they're the bosses. I'm just, I'm just sitting here wondering. <laughs> anyway, as far as Justice Kavanaugh is concerned, we only got one question. And, I mean, I, I thought it was a good question that kind of got to the heart a lot of, these, of what textualism means in these kind of old statutes. But the advocate didn't really want to engage on it and just kind of said, ah, I don't know. <laughs> so we didn't get anything else from... Justice Kavanaugh will have to see in the opinion where where he lives on this issue. So those were the LGBT cases. We also had two-thirds of our Kansas docket <laughs> in the October sitting. You want to tell us a little bit about those? Sure. So as we've alluded to on uh, previous episodes this season, uh, we have three cases from Kansas this term so far. Who knows? So far. Maybe we'll get, yeah. we'll get some more. The what are they doing still, over there in Kansas? Yeah, what is, what's the matter with Kansas? The first, the very first argument of the term was a Kansas case, Collar against Kansas, and that involved whether a state can abolish the insanity defense. That provoked a fun question from Justice Breyer involving a dog. Um, and then the sort of bookending the, the Kansas term, as it will probably not come to be called, on the last day of the sitting was Kansas against Garcia, and that involved uh, preemption and immigration and whether states can prosecute certain offenses that overlap with immigration issues. And again, that was a a Kansas case. And so it was the first argument of the term, right, was the state's solicitor general and the uh, that was the Collar case, then the Garcia case. Uh, that was the state's actual attorney general, which was kind of rare, who argued right. the case, right? I got to say, we've had some really stellar advocates um, in this in this sitting. I mean, you know, your normal ones that we see all the time, but then a few that aren't newbies to the Supreme Court, but that aren't you know there as often as some of our people that are there all the time. So, I mean, of course, Pam Carlin and David Cole in the last uh, in those LGBT mm-hmm. cases were great, but also um, the Kansas Attorney General here. Derek Schmidt is he's amazing advocate. So it was a treat to go to arguments this this sitting. And then we have another one coming up in the next sitting. That's that the Fourth Amendment case that we had a in our in our term preview episode where we had Sarah Harrington break that one down. That's the the third Kansas case so far of the term. So all you Kansas Supreme Court watchers, that's a thing. <laughs> we'll have a, another one to look forward to as well. And then something else unique about this sitting was that we had two afternoon arguments. We boo, did. Boo. Yeah, really uh, I was cutting into my early afternoon naps. Um, <laughs> so in these cases, it's, you know, the court usually hears argument at 10 and then another one at 11. When there's an afternoon argument, they'll take a break for lunch and then they'll hear another argument at one, which is torturous. Yes. Yep. But these were actually good cases. Tell us a little bit about the two afternoon Very good cases. That you had to cover, too. Yeah. Because yeah. I need my naps or I get grumpy. Exactly. So, um 
yeah, again, this is bookending the the two days of the term. On the first day of the term, we had Ramos against Louisiana, and that was the question of uh, whether the Constitution requires unanimous juries. It's a, the incorporation question. And then bookending the sitting that was Mathena against Malvo, and that's the infamous D.C. sniper case involving juvenile sentencing. And that's another one where Kavanaugh, I think, is going to be a, a deciding vote here based on the argument, which he, he really dominated. We also had uh, one day of argument devoted to a consolidated question involving Puerto Rico's Financial Oversight and Management Board, uh, stemming from the island's really crippling debt crisis. And this was really uh, an all-star lineup of attorneys, as well as a first-time advocate who we got to speak to. Kimberly, can you tee that case up for us a little bit? Sure. So this uh, case is important, um, one, because it, it's a big money case. It involves just billions of dollars and has really big consequences potentially for um, Puerto Rico itself. Also is important because of the implications it could have for other agencies, uh, in particular the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, mm. um, which is actually there's some petitions waiting for the justices to decide whether or not they'll, they'll hear that issue. So as you mentioned, there was an all-star lineup. We actually had two former solicitor generals, Obama's solicitor general um, Donald Verrilli and Bush's solicitor general Ted Olson. We also had the current deputy solicitor general, Jeff Wall, who is an amazing advocate. And then our guest, who we'll be sp- speaking to later, Jessica Mendez-Kohlberg, who it was her first time, but she was right in there in the mix, and she was representing a labor group. So really, these four advocates got 80 minutes um, where they really argued two issues about the appointments clause. The first question was whether or not the appointments clause even applies to Puerto Rico. And of course, this is the provision in the Constitution that requires advising consent for officers of the United States. And then the second issue um, that's kind of lurking in the background is if someone is appointed in violation of this clause, so what? You know, what yeah, what is a court to do? So the lower court said, yeah, these individuals, board members were appointed in violation of the Constitution, but it would be too difficult to unravel what they've already done over the past three years. And so it kind of left everything in place. And that's a really important issue, again, as I mentioned, for the CFPB and um, kind of going forward. So a lot of interesting and um, kind of unique arguments in these cases. So we should probably chat with our, our guest about them. Let's do it. So our guest today is Jessica Mendez-Kohlberg. She was one of the attorneys who argued one of the cases in the October sitting related to the Financial Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us on Cases and Controversies. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So, uh, you know, before we got on with you, Jordan and I talked a little bit about how there were really four advocates here and kind of two issues, um, you know, going on in this case, you know, whether or not the appointments clause even applies to Puerto Rico and then kind of what the court should do about it. Your argument was a a unique one um, regarding these so-called insular cases. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of these cases and really um, what you guys are arguing? Yes. Well, the the insular cases were decided in. Are, there are vari- various cases, and they were decided at the at nineteen o one, at the end of the Spanish American War, when the United States acquired the the territories uh, because of the of the ending of the war. 
Now, the, the difference was the United States has had territories uh, long, long before the, the, the insular cases, but the problem with this particular territories is that they were uh, of a different race, of a different culture, different language. In Puerto Rico, we, we speak Spanish. So uh, the, the problem in, in, at that time was that the court considered if the, constitu the, the Constitution should apply in its whole extent to the territories, or if there were going to uh, apply so, just some of the provisions of the Constitution that now we, we call it the fundamental rights of the Constitution to the unincorporated territories. So what the court said was to to that in the case of Puerto Rico, for example, it said, well, Puerto Rico belongs to the United States, but it's not part of the United States. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we need to look at what, which of the provisions of the Constitution apply, and only those fundamental rights would apply. So, it, and and the basis of the of the reasoning of the court, and we can see it in the in the text of the opinions, is that it, it referred to the inhabitants of the territories as uh, alien races, mm -hmm. uh, and and the difficulties of incorporating such territories because they were different on the basis of race, cultures, religion, different uh, modes of, of taxation because these territories were belonged to Spain. So that's where the in, in a different uh, series of cases, the territorial incorporation doctrine evolved. Hmm. And it stated that only those territories, uh, it made a distinction between incorporated territories and unincorporated territories. The incorporated territories were those that were in the path to statehood, like Alaska and Hawaii. And then uh, the unincorporated territories, we have Puerto Rico, we have the Philippines, and uh, we have Guam that were not on the path to, to statehood. Right. So those are the ones that only the fundamental provisions of the Constitution apply. Now, what ha what does that have to do with my case? Well, in our case, we when we started before the district court, it the 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 opposing parties, the United States, the Oversight Board, said that the appointments clause would not apply to Puerto Rico because the, it was not a fundamental right. And they are using, they are relying on the ins, on the territorial incorporation doctrine of the insular cases to state that even the structural provisions of the Constitution don't apply to Puerto Rico because it is an unincorporated territory and because Congress has plenary powers over the territories, according to, to Article 4. So since the beginning of the proceedings, the insular cases have been an issue. And actually, when the, when the case went on to the First Circuit, the First Circuit decided that, uh, actually expressed that, that the insular cases hover like a dark cloud over this case. However, obviously, the, the, the lower courts don't have the authority to overrule the insular cases. Since the beginning, we've been uh, requesting for the insular cases to be overruled because they, the, the quality, the reasoning uh, of the court is based on purely racial considerations. Um, so that's uh, basically the, the, the point. So this was one thing that um, Chief Justice Roberts really pushed back on um, was this idea about how um, the insular cases really fit into um, the the 
case as it stands right now. And so he pointed out that right now those aren't the arguments that the advocates are making in front of um, the Supreme Court. They're, They're saying that the appointments clause doesn't apply for other reasons besides these insular cases. And and um, you had a response to him um, that kind of referenced the travel ban. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, because, well, actually, um, he said that that now the parties are not relying on the insular cases, but actually uh, this are, these are consolidated cases and the unsecured creditors that didn't argue before the court that day, but they are a party in these proceedings, they are still relying on the insular cases to to establish that the appointments clause doesn't apply. But the United States is saying that uh, now, before the, the, the Supreme Court, because before in the district court and the court of appeals, they were relying on them, but now they say that they are not relevant and the, the oversight board is not even addressing them before the, the, the Supreme Court. So that's why Chief Justice Roberts uh, said, well, I don't see the relevance. But still, um, as I said, they are relevant because the parties have relied on it. And actually, last term, it's the Trump versus Hawaii case where because of the dissent of Justice Sotomayor, he, the, 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 the majority opinion said, well, this is not the, the Korematsu case has nothing to do with the Trump, with the case that we have before us. But still, that case is uh, the, based on purely racial considerations and it's morally repugnant, which is the, the words that I that I. Uh, used uh, the oral argument, and I said, "Well, if with the Korematsu versus Hawaii versus United States case didn't have anything to do with the Trump versus Hawaii case, but still it was overruled because it is based on purely racial considerations and it's morally repugnant, then the insert cases are the same, right? Right, and and they should be overruled too. Yeah, that was a really." Um kind of quirky line in the travel ban about how the majority opinion said Korematsu had been overturned in the court of public opinion, which I didn't know really had jurisdiction over over Korematsu, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, so so Jessica, aside from the actual uh, content and the substance of the argument, this was your first Supreme Court argument, right? Yes, it was. And so can you tell us a little bit sort of about um, what your preparation was like and what the experience was like for you having just argued a case at the Supreme Court? Well, it it definitely was an extraordinary experience for me uh, and also to be from Puerto Rico and to be a young lawyer, woman, um, it, it was a, a great experience for me to be the face of the, of the people of Puerto Rico, of the workers that I that I represent. So it was um, definitely something to something to remember. Um, in terms of the of the preparation, uh, I, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm a young lawyer, so I was just uh, a few a few years back. I was studying for the bar exam, so I practically used that same technique. Um, I I was reading every day day and night, all of the briefs, all of the cases. I was taking notes. Um, we did a lot of moot courts here in Puerto Rico with professors and, and other lawyers that are experts in the constitutional topics. So um, that was very, very helpful. And then when I when I got to, to D.C., we were able to have some other moot courts with experts in the insular cases specifically, um, some of the of the colleagues that work with the amici that were uh, presented before the court in this case uh, did uh, an amazing job helping us um, to structure the arguments and to see what what fits, what doesn't fit, what is a, a good approach. 
and and that definitely was very very helpful and and yes it, it was a, an amazing experience and and I'm just hoping we can go back because we have other cases with the unions here in Puerto in Puerto Rico with respect to the Promesa Act so let's see if we get another opportunity yeah, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned, um, you know, that you were there kind of representing Puerto Rico. And I, I remember one line um, in your argument where that I thought was that stuck with me about how, you know, while you're here in D.C., you'll be covered by a lot of constitutional rights. But then when you go home to Puerto Rico, um, you will have fewer. And I thought that was um, something unique that you were able to bring to the argument. Yes, yes. And and that's actually because I am from Puerto Rico and I'm, I'm living the 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 different the, the second class citizen citizenship that that Puerto Ricans have because of the territorial incorporation doctrine in uh, of the insular cases so i i thought that it was appropriate for me to to say this is not something uh that affects a few people my clients it it, it even affects myself so um and and when i saw for the first time the phrase equal justice under law because it was actually my first time at the supreme court ever um, I, I I saw the, 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 the phrase equal justice under the law and, and what I thought was, well, that needs a, a question mark at the end because it, it actually doesn't apply to everybody because it included thinking about the people of Puerto Rico and the other territories. So that that's where I got the the idea for that for that opening statement. Sort of one more question about the argument. This is sort of much uh, less uh, loftier matters. But earlier in the episode, Kimberly and I were talking about this new rule about the justices not being able to interrupt advocates at the beginning of their arguments. Um, this rule sort of came out shortly prior to when the argument was held. And wondering if that sort of affected your preparation at all or what your experience was like with that aspect of the argument, too. It was actually good news for me because I had less time than the other than than the other attorneys. So for me, it was good to at least have one minute to to talk without interruption to get my my two points because um, we do have similar arguments with the with uh, the other Aurelius, the, the hedge fund that is also um, questioning the appointments of the oversight board. But obviously, they had more time, so I needed to to focus on on two main points which was which were the insular cases and the remedy because the remedy is obviously very important for us and the, the two minutes gave me the, the the one minute gave me the opportunity to to make a bold statement that would refer to my two main points because you don't know what's going to happen then with the questions and if you're going to have enough time to to address the, those two points so for me it was it, it was very beneficial all right. Well, uh, Jessica, again, thanks so much for coming on to Cases and Controversies. We're looking forward to having you on again when you're back at the Supreme Court for your next argument. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me and happy to collaborate in any way that I can. So that was really that was really good, Jordan. I mean, she wasn't joking when she said she's a, a young lawyer. She graduated in 2013. That's yeah, kind of wow. incredible. Putting us all to shame. I know. What are we doing with our lives? Well, um, yeah, that was super interesting, you know, something... A little different and you know and having so many different parties arguing in the case gives sort of an opportunity to get a different perspective so that was cool that we were able to do that yeah it'll be interesting to see what the supreme court says about it if anything so about her part yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 
until next week, we can all contemplate uh, what we're doing with our lives. <laughs> until then, you can follow along with all the great, the latest Supreme Court news. And greatest. And greatest, latest and greatest, at news.bloomberglaw.com. And be sure to check us out next week where we're going to do our deep dive episode into DACA. Suspending the Rules is Bloomberg Government's weekly deep dive into what's happening on Capitol Hill. As is often the case with suspension bills, there's something of a theme behind them. Every Monday, BGov reporters and legislative analysts preview the week in Congress. This would be a rejection of what the Trump administration called for. And break down the biggest bills on the agenda. Autonomous vehicles are going to know everything about where we go and what we're doing. You can listen and subscribe to Suspending the Rules wherever you get your podcasts. Find more information at about.bgov.com.